0: Welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 910. This is lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen. At the end of prospect week, Dylan Higgins, producer, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Eric, how are you doing? You've made it. You've survived.
0: <laughs> yeah, so far, I, I have still stuff, some stuff to do, and I got to hit college games tomorrow, but uh, I'm sweaty, and there was definitely a three-day stretch this week when I didn't shower, but, uh, <laughs> but we, we've come to this episode of the podcast, Dylan. Thanks so much for, for bringing me on to the intro to talk about what people were about to listen to.
1: Yeah, so uh, as Prospect Week at Fangraphs.com, you, I'm going to say, commandeered uh, Fangraphs Audio for the week, which is great. We're doing a special Prospect episode, and you brought in guests and had, you had a vision for this, so I helped you put it <laughs> together, but tell us about this episode that we made.
0: Yeah, this, I love sports in general, and I love just watching players play and player evaluation. This has mm-hmm. been the thing for me since I was a kid, and so I wanted to have an interdisciplinary conversation with people who do this in other realms and put out the bat signal for people who do stuff in other sports. And a few of them got back to me and they're on the pod today. Uh, And so the first one that you'll hear is Matt Lloyd, who's the assistant general manager for the Orlando Magic set up by Kevin Goldstein. He's, He's a contact of his. And we talk about what it's like to be an AGM in the NBA right now and player evaluation therein. And then in the middle, you'll hear Luis Scott Vargas who's one of the co-founders of ChannelFireball.com and one of the best Magic the Gathering players on the planet. I botched his intro live as we did it, but Luis is one one of the best in the world at the thing he does. He's also a world-class educator and a person who has helped shape the way I think about baseball just through the way he's explained the game of Magic the Gathering uh, to me and other people through his podcast and content. Mm -hmm. So it was incredible to have him on. He's a guy who, when you talk to him, you just know he's got a Ferrari engine in his skull and it feels different to talk to a guy like that. And then our final guest is Pro Football Focus's Steve Palazzolo to talk about how hard it is to... Evaluate NFL players considering the context and what it was like to do it during a year with no NFL combine as the NFL draft approaches.
1: Yeah, this was all really interesting segments in terms of obviously dipping into other sports. And we know kind of how hard it is to evaluate prospects in baseball. You're trying to figure out how good these young adults are going to be at the sport at the highest level years from now. It's about impossible. And they do that in football and basketball. And then LSV talking about magic. I remember playing cards as a kid. And as you guys talk about, it's just grown to so much. I mean, would you just call it evaluation? Is it about efficiency? But that same kind of, they're not talking about athletes, but cards and how meta changes and strategy changes over a game over decades. And yeah, it, it really fit to baseball in really interesting ways.
0: Yeah, like baseball, the tools by which you can evaluate either the people playing or the tools, it's a, had a long-term impact on all of these realms. Technology is a huge driver in that. Uh, we'll hear Luis talk about how the internet was an important part of that in magic in a way that created some bizarre uniformity that not everybody has an appreciation for, uh, which I understand. And yeah, it's fascinating to see how these people who are immersed in their own realm uh, have adjusted to and evolved in a way that you know people in baseball have had to as well. Just everyone's been impacted by the way the world has changed in subtly different ways.
1: And so if people want to go check out all the mountains of stuff you did at Fangraphs.com, what's the quick rundown of what we're offering this week in Prospect Week? Our top 100, but what else did you fire out there?
0: Right. The 100 is the big one. I uh, added some future international players to the board, some of the, the top of the class talents from the next couple of years. It's really just for next year uh, functionally, but practically is for a couple of years from now. And the corresponding piece with that explains why. And then on the eve of the beginning of college baseball, which you know is going to be messy because of COVID, there are updated draft rankings for both 21 22 and 23 draft classes so folks should be on the lookout for that in addition to other prospect week content from kevin goldstein ben clemens and myself
1: and i also saw i enjoyed you have a tutorial you made for the board if you haven't gone and checked out the board uh, it's just the best baseball prospect feature on the internet right now it's incredible you should be incredibly proud and you even made a how-to to check it out it's great you know i know i work here but it's really impressive that that's it fan so go check out the board and go check out the other prospect week stuff without further ado we should get right into this yeah eric
0: yeah i'm excited for folks to listen to it. i hope you guys enjoy it. and now i'm joined by orlando magic assistant general manager matt lloyd matt how is it going
2: Eric, I'm uh I'm really really excited to be here today. Thanks thanks so much for the offer. Um I have to say, you know, when I got the email, I was particularly excited because I read your book this summer. <laughs> and uh, you know, just the opportunity to be here is is awesome, so thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, man. Yeah, that's that's something else. I forgot that that book came out. <laughs> it's just been such a bizarre year like when the build up to it coming out was hey, there's this pandemic. <laughs> so there are still only like six signed copies in existence, and a couple of them are in those little like sidewalk libraries here in Tempe. Just kind of stuffed them in there. But yeah, I, Kevin Goldstein knows you. How do you know Kevin? He's the one who really put us together.
2: Yeah. So, um, when, when he worked for the Astros, their, their spring training site is close to Orlando. And he had reached out just by happenstance, um, and just saying, Hey, you know, we're in the, in the area. We'd like to come to a game. And we actually we ended up going out and, um, making a presentation to their pro scouting group uh, when he was with the Astros. And he came, he brought the whole pro scouting group to a game here. And it just turns out I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. And, you know, I think he lives in DeKalb. So we had a little bit of a connectivity from that point as well, but have been interested and excited to see him kind of matriculate back into the public domain um, so we can all kind of benefit from his knowledge.
0: Is that common for teams to have sort of interdisciplinary meetings with one another across sports is that a thing that you've done before it's sort of the whole point of this podcast
2: yeah i, I eric you know it's it's funny i i wish we did more of it quite frankly um and i think everyone kind of gets caught up into the cadence of their season and you know having that one window of, of downtime maybe um, makes it a little difficult to 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 do that i have taken the chance over the last 20 years i've been lucky enough to take the chance i've met with an NFL team, several baseball teams, and, and an NHL team, and just kind of to share uh, viewpoints, share experiences, share philosophies, and never really kind of getting to the point where things were jeopardized, you know, uh, but but rather just conceptually, like, how do you approach scouting? How do you approach player evaluation? And what can we take from 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 what you do um, and apply it to what we do to in, in in an effort to kind of really make the the best process possible so
0: how would you characterize the like the point on the journey of understanding that all the sports seem to be at like the the analytics aspect of evaluation just came to baseball much sooner and more aggressively than in other sports just because there's so many data points and it's very individualistic as a sport. And then in basketball, like the team cohesiveness is so important that it makes it harder to individualize things. But then analytics really surged in basketball. Like where do the other sports seem to be on their like monkey touching the monolith journey toward understanding players better? Yeah, I
2: think um, that is such a great question. We, we uh, I think in, in the NBA we're we're only you know really scratching the surface and the advancements that have been made over the 20 years that i've worked in the nba are like leaps and bounds you know we were we were putting together excel spreadsheets 15 years ago in an effort to to try to differentiate between college players and and that sort of thing and now we're inundated with with data from from camera tracking systems and and um you know physical and athletic profile testing and and we're just really kind of scratching the surface we're, we're really lucky here in orlando We've made a significant investment in analytics, and uh, we think it's going to uh, help us derive an advantage, especially from the scouting perspective, you know. But that's a great thing. You know, we have so much stuff available in the public domain, and then we have our proprietary and, and kind of private information that we're constantly working with. But from, from the NBA's perspective, you know, they've made such a huge, like, leaps and bounds from from where we were but but again like we're just silly still scratching the surface because you nailed it it's it's not a um there's so much context involved with an individual game and and um individual possession even down to like that that one possession so much can happen and how are we tracking it and and what is it telling us um you know we're we're we're, we're trying to get to those
0: answers all the time is there like a broad strokes it's been interesting to sort of watch how the sixers have repurposed their like their role players around the two stars where there were clearly issues of fit as you just mentioned previously like that's just an example of this but are there are players being described in ways that are different than their traditional point guard shooting guard small forward position types as a way of showing that these pieces can fit together. Does that make sense? Like similar to the way that like in the NFL, we stopped calling guys four three defensive ends or three, four defensive ends. And now guys are just sort of described as edge rushers. Like, has there been any effort to sort of classify players in a way that is non-traditional to better express what it is they're actually doing on the floor?
2: Yeah awesome yes exactly and um you know like when you you bring up that that thing about football you might as well have been speaking um a different language to, to me like i i know <laughs> i know literally nothing about football um but for from the perspective of of basketball and and the highest level of basketball you know there has been a shift in in how we label players and that shift really exists from you know, valuing different things uh, when you're when you're really out evaluating and 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 looking at at skill and and um, the way the, the the rules changes that that took place over the last seven to ten years, uh, maybe it's even longer. You know, like one one day kind of bleeds into the other. But the the, the rules changes that the the league um, instituted seven to ten years ago really um, redefined how we have to look at things. And and there's so much context involved in in, in basketball. And basketball has always been my by far my favorite sport, but my first introduction in working into pro sports was working in the Chicago White Sox video room. And basically what we did back in 1994, 95, 96 was sit in front of a bank of VCRs and and record these one-on-one battles. And I always found it fascinating because the, the, the hitters would come back and they would always watch their at-bats and the pitchers would come and, and they would always watch each pitch. Now we've like I'm sure that that Major League Baseball video rooms have advanced to the point of like digital video e- equipment, et cetera, et cetera, just as we have in the NBA. But the shift has been not, you know, we have to look at we have to look at an offense and a defensive player and and how they transition between those two over the course of a game, and so it's it's. It really has gone from a labeling of a point guard a shooting guard a small forward a a power forward and a a center and those prerequisites have changed as to what we value now it's a product of the evolution of the players who are incredible athletes and incredible they have incredible adaptability to to the game and then it's a product of the rules changes and, and and the coaching changes that have happened um the coaching philosophy changes that have happened over the last 10 years so you see a lot now where coaches want to play a switching defense because once we get into the playoffs and you get into a 7 game series the other team knows exactly every single play that you're going to run so basically you're 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 attempting to get yourself into an advantageous one-on-one matchup with your best player and then allow that best player to create offense for for his teammates and then defensively you have to have the capacity to switch everything so when you're in a disadvantage you can you can make up for it so the chess game that goes on um, especially deep into the playoffs is really fascinating to watch
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that and i'm like way, way off book now on the initial scripted playbook of questions that i had to to ask you but i was an assistant coach and did advanced scouting for my high school alma mater's basketball team for a couple of years before i moved to arizona this is going on like eight years ago now and i have a bunch of silver medals uh, from districts and whatnot, and I didn't really have anything to do with it. We just had a really good group of kids at the time, and it was a lot of what you're talking about, where it's like sort of positionless athletes. We had guys with length. It was a two-way school, so I'm talking about like kids who were 6'2", who played wide receiver and running back on the football team and then came over and played basketball. And all the kid, the kids' instincts were almost always to switch with each other because we just had those types of – multi-positional athletes on the floor who could kind of get away with it there there was rare that any of them would find themselves in a really bad matchup except against one team which is the team that has the gold medals from the colonial league and, and district 11 during those years but um yeah so it's really interesting that just from watching the nba evolve in that way and that these young teenage kids that's the basketball they're watching That's what their instincts are to do now. Have you seen, as the thinking in the NBA has evolved over the last handful of years, that it is easier to find players who fit these paradigms because they're just naturally inclined to do it. It's sort of trickled down into college and high school ball already, and they come pre-loaded with these skill sets that you're now looking for
2: yeah i i think that you nailed it and and the the reason is that there's so much skill development that goes on now you know and and specialization that goes on now and what it's happened is is that these guys come prepared uh to the highest level to play a, a variety of different styles offensively and defensively and not only college coaches are are excellent at what they do from a player development standpoint but those aau programs that they that that everyone kind of is, you know, hand rings over uh, at times. They're preparing those guys because they're they're competing against the highest level of players at their age at every step, you know. And, and I don't know if we could say that 20 years ago. I, I don't think it was as prevalent back then to to put the best high school and junior level players together, um, and and allow them to to compete you know? And so we've, uh, we've kind of gotten to this point where in basketball, at least where these guys come prepared and they really have, you know, a set of skills that they can, they can utilize on the, on the NBA floor. And then they're all just the, 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 the tallest and the strongest and have the longest arms and the, and the fastest, you know, so they start to weave themselves out through these different levels. And when they reach
0: here, they're generally, you know, ready to go. I'm going to ask you about two schedules now. So the first one is for your front office an annual calendar of scouting for the draft if midnight on new year's eve is the end of the previous draft what are the next 12 months like leading up to the next draft
2: yeah it's a great way to look at it and that that new year's eve that's exactly what happens the day the draft ends in a non you know COVID impacted year there's generally we start the summer schedule immediately and, right. and the summer schedule is where we prepare for two drafts down the road. So if in 2021, we'd be preparing for 2023, the day after the draft, because 2022 is we had prepared for that the previous summer where we go to events where USA Basketball um, is playing in international competitions at the the U16, I'm sorry, the U18, U19 and U20 levels um, where we have access to those. And then we had been to the... Um, mcdonald's all-american game in the in the lead up and all the high school all-star events in the lead up to The 2021 one draft that might not happen this year so our normal schedule is the summer schedule starts we do the youth we do the youth events and our, those are again are Generally like the kids for two drafts away or or in some cases one draft away sometimes the u19 kids will will declare for the draft the next year and then we're into the summer league when that's that's a the the bulk of that is our pro scouting um and we're looking at the rookies transitioning into the nba and the second and third year players that are generally participating in summer league just to get a sense of the development that they underwent and the change in their bodies from the end of the off season to to the summer and then late in the summer is usually there's a a a couple of shoe company camps that run like in august and those will um those will, have, those will be, again, like two drafts away, and then they'll have college kids that act as counselors. And the counselors will play in pickup games, and they'll do skill development during the day. And we get a chance to really sit there for four or five days and see the entire, the entire next two drafts kind of play out right in front of us. And then generally August is a little downtime, and, and we begin to ramp up and, and uh, get into October october will be heavy ncaa practice scouting so we'll go out and touch base with contacts at division one schools and start to gather our information about you know personal information background information we'll do a lot of scouting in october uh, traveling to to different college campuses then in november the games start those are just generally the big events like the maui invitational or um the champions classic you'll you'll see those and it's an opportunity to see multiple teams play multiple games over the course of three four days if you go to Maui you get to see eight teams generally all eight teams are are, have multiple prospects and you get to see them play three times against the best competition so an event like that is an incredible resource for us as scouts because just from the chance to see mass people then December you know some some organizations do it differently December is a time when the conference season starts, and generally, first semester finals are going on. That's the time that I like to go to Europe and kind of cover every, everyone that's going um, any sort of prospects that'll be in the draft the following season there. And it's maybe sometimes it's been up to like a two, two and a half week trip. Um, sometimes it's just a week trip. Um, then we come back and we get into the uh, conference season and, and targeted matchups. And for me, I'm trying to get. Our president of basketball operations and our general manager in front of the the top prospects. And so making sure that they're seeing everything that they need to see. So then we hit the conference tournaments. And again, it's, that's more preparation for the following year. And to kind of close the book on guys, the NCAA tournament, and then the, the whole pre-draft cycle
0: starts. So kind of wow. a
2: longer answer, but... That's kind of a step-by-step of the, of the draft overview. No,
0: yeah, it's exactly what I was looking for. And then the other calendar that I'm interested in, this would probably be a multi-year calendar too, and certainly there was some overlap in what you just said. But for the individual player, at what point in high school – are kids really being identified? Certainly you mentioned that you want to have a multi-year track record with the player. You don't just want to go, all right, who are all these really good freshmen at Kentucky? You want to have a multi-year history with the player uh, and be tracking different performance data as well. It's just such a different animal than baseball where there's coming out of high school and then you either go to junior college or you wait three more years. Like We have three years of performance-related data to judge the college players off of, whereas the opposite is true for the elite NBA prospects. But I'm curious... For like a mid-tier prospect for someone, like I went to college with Ahmad Nivens and Pat Kalathis, who you might recall from St. Joe's. So for those guys who are not elite prospects, but are NBA and then European pro prospects, nonetheless, at what point are they identified in high school as division one talents? And then at what point do they sort of fall away to, you know, no offense to my alma mater, but like a second tier type of school like St. Joe's? And then at what point are they – do NBA teams value them as, in Niven's case, a second-round pick? And in Kalathis' case, someone who's going to go play pro ball in Greece? Hey,
2: I'll, I'll give you um, a little tidbit. So Ahmad Nivens lives here in Orlando, and that guy just ended playing last year. He played pro basketball last – two years ago. Sorry, two years ago. He he just uh, ended his pro basketball career, and he's like kind of looking to get into front office or – or or coaching or something like that. So, um, you know, his career ended up being a a really good one. And for us, you know, we we see the elite high school players only. You know, so so we see the elite high school players gathered all in one area, like either the McDonald's All-American game, uh, the Jordan Brand Classic, the Nike Hoop Summit, which takes place every year in April and brings in a collection of the best high school American players and playing against a group of international kids, 19 or younger. So... We, those, that's when we start to really identify kids and, and, and start to put them in our processes in our system and, um, and start tracking them. Then the guys like at St. Joseph's, for example, who they, everyone, when they get, I think it's important to remember, like everyone, when you start playing division one college basketball, especially at a place like St. Joe's, it's in a major conference, a mid, you know, high mid major conference, those guys are all prospects. And you know, one of the only live games I've seen this year was St. Joseph's played at in it. So those guys are all prospects. And then we start to, to whittle them down over the course of the year. So we had, we start with a big number and generally, you know, a guy, a, a player at a, at a school like St. Joseph's, you know, that, those guys, sometimes they'll be seniors, sometimes they'll be juniors, but they're prospects nonetheless. And, and it's our responsibility. We have one scout allocated to each conference and that, that scout generally has a, a number of conferences that he's responsible for, and he's responsible for tracking, he or she is responsible for tracking that player's progress over the course of his career to decide whether he's a draftable player or someone that we maybe can draw some something out of by putting him in our G League program.
0: So you mentioned your scouts. I noticed there's a great piece recently on The Athletic that dives into some more of how you've gone about your business over the last year with the pandemic and how Uh, Like you've been forced to shift more to video, and in there it sounds like there are a bunch of people in the office who, in addition to doing scouting for the pro and amateur side, are also have like developmental responsibilities. They're an assistant on your G League team. Do you notice a difference between the types of players that the folks who are part of the dev process like compared to the scout only ones? Is there are there certain traits? Uh, Because certainly on the baseball side, there are certain. Coachability and just general affability; those 10 types of players tend to buoy toward the top of the dev groups pref list. And the guys who are just at the field scouting the players are a little bit more removed from that and more inclined to lean on talent. I'm curious if you see anything similar in your group in Orlando?
2: Yeah, it's a um, just having some familiarity with what they do in baseball and how there's. Um you know, they have that player development group and they have, we have the, the, the scouting group. And generally, you know, once they're drafted, the scouts kind of like turn them over to the player development group. And it doesn't necessarily work that way here, just because we're dealing with less volume. So, you know, they have, you know, whatever, they introduce, you know, 60 new players into the into the system in a normal, year, however many, maybe 25, whatever. We are generally introducing like two. And the group that we have at the Lakeland Magic, which is our G League program, you know, they have responsibility scouting wise because they're also trying to identify the players that can take up the roster on their, on, their, on the, for the team. So we may have one or two players that we've targeted and placed in Lakeland to observe and monitor and, and really participate in their development in hopes that they can become, you know, a, a rotation level NBA player. Um, and then, then we have some guys that we're, we're just trying to like further their pro basketball experience by by being on the roster. So there's not as much of the divide between the two uh, programs, you know, like between the two systems. And generally they work hand in hand. When we when we go out and scout a Big Ten game, um, there may be an identification of a guy that, that we say, hey, you know, this guy may uh, be really interesting to put into Lakeland and to see if we can make him into X. You know, how we talked about earlier about the players don't really have labels anymore, but, but rather roles, you know, can we, can we mine this player into this role? And so, you know, that, that note then goes to the big 10, you know, the person in charge of the big 10, and then, you know, he evaluates them and we put them through all of our filters in terms of like checking and understanding their backgrounds, et cetera. And then the G League program, those guys will evaluate them too when the time comes. But but we just deal with such less volume than baseball teams do. So yeah. there's always opportunity there.
0: And then how the, have you guys dealt with some of the asymmetry of talent quality at either the various conferences or when you're trying to compare players in Europe to domestic amateur players? Any strength of schedule type of adjustments that you guys are making to try to understand the, the players better and adjust for their performance? Certainly there's something to the Hoosiers. Hey, the, it's the same 10-foot hoop at every court in the world. So a guy's three-point percentage in Senegal is going to be the same as it is in France and the same as it is in Louisville. Uh, but it's certainly, like as you mentioned before, context is important. So have you, how are you guys trying to deal with that?
2: Yeah, it's it's a constant challenge to, to make sure that we're 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 looking through things a contextually and all through the the same lens, you know? So for example, the the game is the way the game is played in college is different than the way the game is played in Europe than is different than the way his game is played in the G League and is different than the game the way the game is played at the NBA. So our are really our our filters we really have to look and say okay does the player have the physical and athletic tools to capable of playing in the nba you know and and really knowing what those are and defining them and then um you know does the player have the skill level to play in the nba um and then those intangible things you know so when we're watching a player play in the euroleague the highest level of pro basketball in europe we have to understand that that the context and and under which he's playing is much different so his performance and his metrics will be different and we have to know the the application of of the transferability of those metrics you know and we really we have to rely on our 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 ability to like whittle that down and and look at it and say this player is doing this here and that's really incredible can he transfer can he do that at the highest level and and why and why so it's it's a lot that goes into it you know that's i think a lot of NBA teams are trying to solve that riddle some have and and some some invest a lot of resources towards Towards answering that question. For us, it's something that we're, you know, we're working towards as well. And, and we have like a little bit of a understanding of what we think is the transferability internally.
0: You mentioned the camera motion tracking technology a little earlier. The days that I would go to the MIT Sloan conference before it got too cool. <laughs> uh, I remember someone mentioning that there was a correlation between the regularity of the height of someone's jump when they're shooting a three pointer, like the consistency of the height to which they jump correlated to their three point percentage. And so like the great example of this is Ray Allen, who just, and I guess Rip Hamilton is another guy who could just come off of screens all day. And yet his shot was consistent every time, like similar to these elite command pitchers whose mechanics are consistent every time. So I'm, I'm curious with the, the camera tracking how is that working from a technology standpoint and are there other interesting correlates between what's being tracked there and performance on the court, specifically stuff that most NBA teams seem to know about, but maybe the public does not such that it's not like sensitive that you're sharing it?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's um, you know, it's probably my responsibility to take for proprietary purposes uh, to kind of keep most of it kind of private, but at the same time. You know, there's there's a lot of, of stuff that can be gained from that. And, and again, that technology has evolved so dramatically over the last 15 years that we're and we're still just kind of getting to the bottom of it and getting to the bottom of it is so exciting. And, and it's 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 a technology I think is replicated in pro soccer. I think they, they utilize it in at the highest levels in, in, of pro soccer in Europe, and I think that was the, the genesis. You know, Stats Incorporated started this project a long, long time ago, and they're a company based in Chicago, and they started this project a long time ago. But it was the genesis of it was based off of soccer and pro soccer. So I think we're you know we, we still are still kind of in the stages of understanding you know what we can gain from it.
0: Is there a way you could go about trying to describe what the gap? between what NBA teams understand about player evaluation and what the public understands about it. Is there any sort of example you can give about how big that gap might be? or maybe some people writing on the public side who are sort of dangerous when it comes to possibly bridging that gap? Yeah, I think you know those the people that,
2: that do it and, and like draft Twitter and and the, and the people that really made that a cottage industry and, and it's their little niche they're, they're all so good at it. And I am constantly like, you know, blown away by the, their ability to like identify players through the use of metrics or through the use of their eyes, or, you know, have you seen this player? And it's really, it's just, it's just another data point for us. And, and we have to respect what they're seeing. And, and our challenge is, is to, to understand how things would, would fit and work internally. And that means knowing who we are and, and knowing what we can, what we can maximize. You know so that's where the difference is i think sometimes is is just the the context under what is happening within our organization and, and the players that we have and and who are we introducing into that mix after we've evaluated them and after we've kind of come to the point of understanding who they are as people that's sometimes where the divide is you know and that's that that works both ways it could work as someone says oh they made a mistake drafting that player or or, or, wow, they they really uh, overshot it because the, generally those teams will know you know who they are first, and sometimes it's hard for the people that do such a great job of of covering the draft and covering you know player transactions in this media cycle that we're in this 24-hour media cycle, who all do an incredible job. They don't understand sometimes what pressures that we're under and and how we're evaluating things internally, and sometimes you know. You can have a great process and and a great understanding of who you are, and you'll still make a mistake. And right. and you yeah. have to understand that that mistakes those mistakes were made as an educated you know mistake. <laughs> and and sometimes that's hard for for people to
0: accept. As well, it should be. This is pro sports. I mean, our job is to to go win. All right, we're coming up here on our half hour, so this will be our last general question to to discuss. I'm curious how deals come together, trades uh, specifically. And you guys have made a couple of big ones over the course of your career working with the Bulls and then moving to Orlando. And if it's anything like baseball, there's a pretty wide range of possibilities for how stuff like this comes together. It could be over the course of only a couple of days. And sometimes trades are discussed in baseball over the course of several months before they're finally consummated. So I'm curious how that tracks in basketball And if you could sort of use, I think the Andrew Bynum, like four team trade and how that sort of came together from a timeline standpoint, not necessarily why everyone decided to do it. Although, you know, I'd like Nick Vucevic to be a sixer still and like Iguodala too would be nice just for a while would have been nice. But yeah, like how did that come together? What was the sort of timeline for for that trade and trades in general?
2: Well, I think in in general, you know, looking at it generally, I've been like so lucky because I've had the opportunity to work with four people that have won the executive of the year in the nba and so just from the 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 opportunity to learn and kind of watch and um every the way that things evolve is probably the same across all sports is is it's you know having positive and and functioning working relationships with your peers (laughs) and they have to trust you and you have to trust them again we're in this like cycle where you know it's hard to keep things private you know, for the most part, and um, that maybe not had always been the case, but it's just the the that's the that's where we're working, and that's the the atmosphere under which we're working now. So, you know, I think watching these these people, these people that I've been so fortunate to work with, it's really basically it's it's a relationship based business, and having really trust based and functional relationships with your peers and with the player representatives is so vitally important. You know, so. Getting back, you know that, that trade that that we made, um, that was I got hired July 1st here in Orlando, and and we ended up making that trade in August. So that entire month was spent, you know, putting together, you know, the the organization's front office, hiring a coaching staff, and and trading trading a player that had as of two years prior prior had taken the team to the finals. So it was our, it was really important for us to to define like what we really wanted to get out of out of any sort of transaction. And our philosophy was going to be, hey, we, you know, we were going to try to build for the future and, and try to load up on younger players and draft picks and, and try to build a, a, a different iteration of the organization. And like, you know, working here in Orlando, it's the, the, the ownership group is incredible. And the resources that were afforded to, to win are, I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing. So we had made that decision. And again, like that was the function of relationships with the GMs at, in, in, in L.A., in Philadelphia and in Denver. And now I'm fortunate enough to work with, the, one of the people that I worked with in, in kind of helping put that deal together was Pete Alessandro And he was the assistant GM in Denver and now he's the assistant GM here. His office is right across the hall from me. I was just in there right before I came in here. So having those having the having those those working relationships with people is so important. And and people can need to be able to look, you look at people and say, okay, I really like that person, and I'm gonna be comfortable working with that person to do a deal that you know works for both sides. If you start to get the reputation of oh you know you gotta win every deal, or then you become a little bit more difficult to work with. So. Um, I think it probably is the, is the same across all pro sports and, and maybe your experience in baseball and, and, and kind of studying baseball and, and baseball front offices, maybe that's the same. But for us, it was knowing what we wanted to accomplish in that transaction and, and really setting some goals and, and executing them. You know, one of the players we acquired in that trade, Nick, you mentioned him, Nick. That guy's having an incredible year this year. He was an all-star two years ago, and he was a piece of that trade. So, you know, it was a it was the the confluence of player evaluation and really knowing exactly what we wanted and and trying to execute it in a in a short window of time.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending time with us on the pod today, Matt, and good luck to you and and the Magic. If folks want to check out. Matt's work, they can go to the Amway Center. This is like where we plug everyone's stuff, and it's like the Orlando Magic. So, thanks a lot, man, and and I really appreciate you coming on and and taking the time.
2: Eric, I I can't again, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. I was a fan of the book, and I'm I'm a I'm, nice. a, I'm a big fan of Fangraphs, and and this was a great great fun. So, I really appreciate it.
0: Now I'm joined by Luis Scott Vargas, professional magic player, contributor, and I I want to say your title is loftier than that at at ChannelFireball.com. You might be a founder of Channel Fireball.
3: Yeah, I'm one of the founders and uh, I guess a vice president
0: right now. So one of the things that that was interesting, Luis, is sort of put together the idea for this podcast, collecting people who do various forms of player evaluation across sports, was uh, to talk to you, who also does a form of instantaneous evaluation as part of your job except it's playing a card game uh, so for folks who are listening to this who probably don't have a great idea of what Magic the Gathering is if you were to explain to them pretty briefly what it was how how do you go about explaining to someone who doesn't know what Magic is what it is?
3: Uh, it it kind of depends on on the audience but uh, I think in general it's it's kind of like a cross between there's got elements of poker and then fantasy elements of like dungeons and dragons or whatever like that's kind of the setting but uh you can kind of interact with it in a lot of different ways and at the at the higher levels people aren't super worried about the the pictures on the cards or what they represent so much as uh how what their value is as game pieces because the game is uh, pretty tactical
0: Right. And, and when I first started getting into Magic the Gathering, which I'm still just a novice at, in my opinion, is it takes quite a while before it becomes the gameplay itself is so complex that it takes a while to become intuitive to you to where you can just care about evaluating the game state and, and the cards when you just have the procedure down. But the thing that attracted me to it is that it is sort of like roster construction in sports when you're putting your deck together. The cards have a cost and an impact level, the same way if you're thinking about adding a player to your roster in in baseball or basketball. Like, there's going to be a cap hit, and there's going to be a player quality, and then there's also an interaction between the cards uh, that is sort of multiplicative, where the pieces have to fit together. You have to have shooters that can surround. Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Otherwise, the two of them don't really work together. Uh, So I I thought it would be interesting to have Luis uh, on the podcast today to talk about some of how, over the course of Magic's history, how he, he's been doing this for quite a while now, has evolved as an evaluator the same way someone who has been evaluating players in sports has evolved as an evaluator over a, a similar period of time. So Luis, how long has magic been a thing and how has the game progressed over the course of that amount of time
3: so it came out in uh, 1993 so we're what 28 years something like that uh now and competitive play really started just a couple years later i mean i think that as with most things people people really get competitive pretty quickly and it, it the game has definitely changed a lot i mean uh Probably not so dissimilar to a lot of sports where you take the best players from 1996 and Magic would honestly not be that high up on the list right now, just because they didn't have all these like years of theory and practice and all these other things to kind of base their, their, their decisions on. So the game is definitely a lot harder now. I started playing professionally in 2003, 2004, around then. And the average player has grown tremendously since then. And so has kind of the, the high end of players as well. So it's interesting kind of seeing that evolution.
0: What are the watershed moments during the course of the history of the game that have led to like big monkey touching the monolith moments where there have been leaps in understanding of how to be better at this?
3: Honestly, I think some of the biggest moments are just accessibility. Uh, In 2004, the first version of Magic Online, maybe 2003, uh, started. So that's where you could actually play Magic, well, online. You could play against people all over the world at any time. And that was huge. Within a year, you saw the, the, the average player base who played at these tournaments get so much better because you were no longer restricted to who was in your geographic area, who could you easily practice against. And then... Uh, strategy websites really took off in the mid two thousands, and that too really led to an increased understanding of oh, well, what what were good good moves to make and what were good strategies and really just how to learn because it used to be that you were kind of limited by who was the best player at in your local area you could learn from them and maybe you'd go to a tournament that was like regional or even national and you and you'd kind of get better and in fact some of the best players in the game in the early years were just when there was a high concentration of talented players that led to more and more. It kind of had a domino effect. Now you, you really have access to great competition at any point. So I think that, yeah, the, the rise of Magic Online, the, the kind of the more, the rise of strategy websites and, and more just online communication. And then uh, another pretty big moment has been the kind of explosion of Magic over the last couple of years as it's grown quite a bit more popular and that has attracted more people to the game.
0: So, I would imagine this is sort of what has happened in sports that, especially with the advent of the internet, as individual teams and people in sports, especially baseball, have made huge leaps in understanding of what's going on, whether that was the money ball A's and then the pervasiveness of that thought, or understanding via technology how like pitching truly works. Like, we're talking, we're into, as far as baseball is concerned now, Luis, like. Physics equations are basically objectively grading pitch quality now, Uh, and so what? It's funny you mention that, by the way, because
3: one of the guys who runs, uh, who the founder of Driveline, is a magic player. Yes, and it's it's been awesome seeing that happen as he's applied that to baseball.
0: Yep, Kyle Bodie is Mm -hmm. a friend of the podcast, Um, and yeah, like it's interesting to talk to Kyle. I've been in his office in Seattle. And yeah, everyone's mouse pad is just a playmat from a GP. But yeah, there's because of this though, there starts to there's like a uniformity creep, like where someone makes these leaps in understanding, and then that thought pervades the rest of the industry at you know various rates. And then there's uniformity for a while before someone else makes a leap. Is this something that you're experiencing in magic? And how is it something that people like you combat? Because obviously you're creating content. You're giving an opinion about cards and the decks and the metagame. And then you have to go play people who read and listen to you in tournaments. So what is the balance of that? How are you trying to strike this balance of informing people, but not giving so much away that you're at a competitive disadvantage? Well, It's definitely true
3: that, you know, as we have this like refinement culture, you see it everywhere, right? Sports, tech, magic, where someone has a good idea and people immediately take run with it and continue refining it and make it better, where every time something cool is discovered, then people do a really good job of kind of assimilating that into what they were doing before. I don't really see it as something to be compatted. Like, yes, it is true that I have a relatively, I think, smaller advantage in a lot of ways than I did when I first started playing, where... I had access to testing with a lot of really good players and other people really couldn't really replicate that. But I I part of my position now is as you mentioned, you know, I, I make videos, I do podcasts, and I and I actually kind of see that as a, as a big part of what I do, where I like being able to help people understand the game better and get better. And then the other thing is Magic is a game of all these little incremental edges and There's a big, big difference between understanding theory and then being able to put it into practice. Uh, So I haven't seen that be too detrimental to my chances in events. Like I'm actually having a pretty good year professionally this year in the the kind of like the pro league that I'm in. Because at the end of the day, I still have a good amount of practice and understanding of the game that gives me an edge. Even if uh, the overall (laughs) skill level of everyone has gone up, I haven't found it to be kind of insurmountable because... Magic's a game that really rewards you for playing for a long time, and it's not to say that newer players can never break in. We have plenty of new players show up every year, and you know they they make their way through the ranks. But you have people who have been playing the game for twenty years, and it's not like a sport where your performance like degrades as you get older. Or at least I right. hope not, <laughs> but because uh, I'm now on the, like the upper end of the of the age for for most Magic players, but you still. You're an old dog, but you keep learning new tricks. You don't lose that that edge, very, at least not that I've found.
0: Have there been any, like, it's complex. People don't understand this necessarily who are listening to this, but there are different magic formats that if I were to analogize it, it's as if there were a baseball league where there were only seven innings rather than nine. Or if you're hitting with 10 hitters rather than nine, and you would alter your roster construction based on th- those rule changes. And like it's similar in magic where the card pool you have to draw from can change and the amount of cards in your deck can change, or you have to go home and like sort of bake a deck off on your own versus you're kind of putting th- together an improvised deck on the fly. Like there are a bunch of different ways to to go about playing the game. Are there any points in time over the course of your career where you realize that there are certain types of cards that were over or underperforming and you started to adjust the way you put together your your toolkit as you as you, you put it together have you had any individual growth during the your career that you can point to
3: well depending on how like what what kind of events you're playing in there are so there's two main types of events and one is constructed where you bring a deck pre-built and you compete with that deck. And the other is limited where you get packs and you open those packs and you make decks out of those packs. So limited rewards a lot more thinking on the fly because you don't know what your pool of cards are going to be. Whereas in Constructed, uh, you can just, well, and, and you should, largely look for what the best performing decks are online and and copy one of them. And that actually was a, it used to be a controversial thing back in the 90s. They were called net decks because it's like, What, you're just going to steal a deck from the internet? And it turns out like, yes, yes, I am. Because you know what? The wisdom of the crowds actually really works out because at this point, we're getting so much data. Everyone's putting results online. Look, I think I'm pretty good at magic. You know, I'm I'm not going to like sugarcoat that. I I, I am good. I'm not foolish enough to think that I'm better than 5,000 people all working together on a deck, which is effectively what happens. So when you look at the constructed decks I bring to tournaments, they largely look like decks that you can find online. It's not like I've got some kind of secret sauce there because the the, the iter- repeated iteration of people playing these decks, posting the lists, how they did, you can look. And there's actually a lot of data analysis for Magic. You can, there's a, a variety of like Twitter accounts or websites you can go to that'll say like, all right, last weekend there were 7,300 matches at a professional level. Here's the results of those. This deck won 57%, this deck won 46, this deck won 59% and from that you can extrapolate a lot of really useful data and i think you'd be foolish not to and and a lot of that is where people you know kind of get their inspiration and maybe you change a card or two because you think you have a good idea but for the most part you don't need to uh, you don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel and i think people who do that end up <laughs> being kind of frustrated because their home brews aren't working
0: yeah this is the thing that i initially sought to think about doing i I don't think i have like the intellectual or or data parsing horsepower to be able to do it but at what level how granular is card or deck evaluation at this point because every card has its cost and then just like in baseball when you're trying to like uh objectively evaluate things you try to boil it down to runs everything eventually just gets reduced down to runs and then that gets baked into all sorts of other metrics that, you know, turn out individualistic value. But how can you, is there, has there ever been an attempt to objectively value each individual card because you feed the traits of a card into like a neural network and it would spit out uh, like some sort of objective value? The closest I can think of because magic, you
3: know, actually con- constructing a roster analogy is really good because magic a lot of the strength of your cards isn't just, what does this card do? There's not one number you can boil a card down to because synergy between cards, having cards that are complementary to each other is a really important part of succeeding in Magic because it's a really complicated game. And instead of having a card that's worth five and a card that's worth seven, you could combine two cards that are worth less and have it equal like 16 because they multiply their strengths together. And as a result, it's not... I I can't really think of one number that that really encapsulates how much a card is worth because you do need that variety of cards. But what some uh what some websites are attempting to do and th- this is of course really powered by the fact that everyone plays online is you'll uh you'll like download these like apps or deck trackers right that'll keep track of everything that happens in your game. It'll feed all that data back and uh like for there's a website called 17 lands which is like a magic reference and what it looks at is what are the win rates of cards in decks? And then what are the win rates of cards when drawn and all these things. And from that, you can kind of get a sense of like, well, this card, the average win rate of a deck in the sample is, you know, 50%. Well, when the, when a deck contains this card, it wins 57%. And when a deck contains this card and you draw the card it's 62% or something like that, and you can get a sense, oh, this card's pretty impactful or, this card, deck containing this card win 42%, well, this card might be actively harmful to to your deck's chances of success. And that's the closest, but they're not really expressed in a single, like, runs number, for example, because right. magic doesn't really work that way.
0: Right, yeah. The damage or cards is the thing that my intuition was. If you're going to boil some something in magic down to some sort of common denominator, that it's like, how many cards is this worth? Or how much damage is it worth? But yeah, now that you mentioned... I wasn't aware of the existence of that website, but I imagine there's enough data being generated. If you were getting meta data from within the game, you could probably start to extract, like, in baseball we have win probabilities during the course of a game. This is why baseball is just so statistic-friendly, because it's very individualistic. It's so much of pitcher versus hitter is what's going on. And there are just thousands of data points during the course of the game that you can collect and measure, and so if my team is down four runs in the fourth inning, but I have two runners on, and there's nobody out, my win probability in the game is different than if there were no runners on, and there were two outs like the uh, amount to it like you can adjust what my win probability is at that level, and so I am wondering if like cards in hand, what the life totals are, like to see the win probability added per card is maybe an avenue that would be interesting to, to dive into. All right. So you mentioned that you're having a good year, which honestly, I don't, obviously didn't shock me, but I would have, I would have guessed that your year was below what it would have typically been in a year where you're playing a lot of magic in person. I'm curious if you can articulate the difference between playing magic in person versus playing online, certainly because of the pandemic, most of what the Wizards of the Coast has decided to do is like all of the domestic uh, in-person events have been halted. So, what are some of the differences of playing in-person and online, and how might that help or hurt someone like you who has a ton of experience of doing both?
3: Oh, I, I I think I have a pretty significant advantage uh, in-person as a, compared to online. Uh, there, there's a couple reasons for that. W- one is that uh, well. <laughs> People when they play against me uh, tend to get a little intimidated. That that is a factor that actually happens. People overestimate how good my cards are, or that I'll have an answer, and they tend to play a little bit more timidly than they than they need to. And I have noticed that happen more in person than online. And then (laughs) I also play pretty fast. It's actually like one of the things that uh, that that comes up uh, if you like were, were to watch me play is that I I tend to play quite a bit faster than the average person, and. I, that doesn't mean my opponents have to like play faster, but it tends to make them play faster because in person you have like a shared time bank or, well, the, in person you have 50 minutes to finish a round and that and it's not dis- it's not differentiated between who's using the time. It would be too cumbersome to use like a chess clock, right, where you pass the time back and forth. But when you play online, each player has their own clock and it is like a chess clock where when you have priority, your time's going down. And when you don't, the other person's time is going down. But because online, it's so clearly differentiated, people, I think, rightfully tend to look at, well, my clock, I'm going to spend it. I'm going to spend my clock however I want to. I'm going to use my time as a resource. In person, it's like a, it's a little more nebulous. And I've found that people tend to match my pace of play or try to a little bit more than they should, which isn't something I try to prompt, but I I know it does have an effect. And I, I do think that I, I get a little bit of an edge from that.
0: Obviously, the structure of... The game is different than other sports like Wizards of the Coast owns Magic and they have a certain power over like the structure of pro play, whereas the NFL and the NBA and MLB have antitrust exemptions and that has an impact on how they do business, but they don't own the game of football or baseball. Like There are other leagues throughout the world and even in the country, whereas Magic, it's a little bit different than that. So how does that impact play and how has that evolved because of the pandemic?
3: There have been third-party circuits and tournament organizers that have run you know, pretty large tournaments before, but in general, the the vast majority of kind of competitive tournaments, especially ones that have good prizes, yes, have been run by by Wizards of the Coast. And the pandemic has been, um, yeah, has been very disruptive. Instead of there being something like forty large-scale, you know, we're talking fifteen hundred to three thousand person tournaments around the world, grand Prix. There have been zero, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it's not a good time. It's not safe to have those. And then more relevant to even professional play, there usually was about six to seven premier level events that would happen around the world. And those haven't been just straight up canceled. Some of them have been moved online, but it's not, it's not quite the same thing. And actually, the prize pools have been a bit smaller. So from that sense, uh, Magic professional play has definitely suffered, uh, as, as have many industries under the pandemic.
0: So if I were going to change that, if I were going to alter Magic to be structured more like a traditional professional sport, and I was going to put you in charge of the franchise in Denver, you have to put together a roster of Magic players from scratch, like there's going to be a draft, basically. What are the traits of the people who you'd be looking to develop to become professional Magic players? Where are you pulling from? How are you scouting them? So I have a pretty
3: good uh, you know, l- idea of the lay of the land when it comes to the professional scene, because I've been involved in a number of teams. I've run a team before, you know, I've played with or against most everyone who's who's in the the top leagues. And right now, the way Magic's structured, there's the Magic Pro League and then there's the Rivals League or the two top leagues, and there's twenty-four and forty-two players respectively in those leagues. And that said, if I were to draft a team I wouldn't be looking only at the players from those leagues because there's plenty of talented players outside of those leagues. And I'd be looking to balance skill right now. You know, who are the best players in the world right now? Alongside kind of longevity. I think that's an important thing because you wouldn't want to draft a player who... You know, maybe maybe he's kind of looking to to exit the the scene or on their way out, right? In terms of their interests or where where they see themselves going next, there there's a lot of players I'm I'm sure across many disciplines who might be among the best, but you can tell that they're not that much longer going to be in that position. Uh, and so I would I would want some people on the younger side who I think are are a little hungrier for victory and want want to last maybe more than a year or two. I would also look at people who would work well together because. I have been a part of teams that it's like let's just grab these you know ten these ten great players and just put them all together without really thinking of how they mesh. They don't work very well because even though Magic's an individual game, when when you're playing, you're you're just playing you against one other person. Team preparation is a huge part of it, and I've definitely credited a lot of my successes to having a good team behind me. A good team is not one made up of people who. Maybe wouldn't really want to hang out at all outside of the, the competition. That's just not not going to lead to the highest morale and, and the best work from people. So those are like the main things I would look at, I think.
0: Yeah, it's to pull people from other sports into baseball. like This is just one of my weird pet projects and things that I think about. It's not really feasible, especially as COVID has really accelerated a lot of what baseball was already aiming to do as far as cost reduction on player acquisition and development side, there's more uniformity now. There's been like a reduction in the number of minor league players who you can have like percolating down uh, and developing. So it's not like you used to be able to do this. You could go to India and find some talented cricket players and just see what happens, like sign them to a pro contract and, and see how it would go. And like tennis players are of interest to me too, because they're like overhand rotational athletes. So, uh, like might be able to throw a baseball or or swing a bat more naturally than somebody who has like no experience at all or someone who's played football all their life. I'm curious if you had to pull from other types of games, which ones do you think are best suited for Magic and why? Who who maybe doesn't have any idea what Magic is right now but is, is doing other stuff might have a natural proclivity for it and why?
3: I definitely would would look to poker. The fact that it's a card game isn't really the, the the issue. It's more that there's a lot of thinking strategically and uh, understanding probability and kind of understanding what you're looking to do. Like w- when you make a bet in poker, you're not just making that bet. You're looking at what is the bet going to do across the rest of the hand? How's it going to inform, you know, the rest of the play of this hand? But also what is it going to signal for future hands? And that, that kind of thinking is actually why it's no surprise. There's a huge crossover where there's a ton of very talented professional poker players who also played a lot of magic, you know, and and the overlap there professionally is, is strong for a reason. Uh, I'd also look at, at chess players for... Kind of the same reason you know just being able to take this good strategic view of the game and plan for the future uh chess has more memorization of of patterns than magic I think does just because chess tends to you know you always start with the same board and it doesn't always play out the same way of course but there's a lot of you know there's a reason there's openings and and, and, and closings and stuff like that where there's a lot of uh, repetition magic has a has less of that but I I would really uh, struggle to 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 find a chess grandmaster or master who would not be excellent at magic if they if they had the inclination to be. Besides those two, because those would be the definitely the, the two first places that I would look. I I would imagine that that looking at Hmm. Yeah, I think th- those those are probably the 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 first places that I would be inclined to look. Though really anyone who is well suited to kind of thinking in that in that space, I think would be really valuable. So it's not as much a physical thing, of course, though I wouldn't be surprised if there's plenty of pro athletes who would actually be pretty good at this.
0: Yeah, there's something, I think the little bit that I have played Magic, and again, like I've done one Phoenix GP back when those were a thing. uh, And yeah, like I know Cassius Marsh plays, I think he's on the Patriots now. There is a certain level of focus and competitiveness that is required just to be able to learn how to play the game. And I forget what it was about it that really pulled me in other than like looking at all these cards and trying to, to mold them together in a way that was functional. But uh, my last question for you is about angle shooting in, (laughs) in sports. This is when when I first saw you do some version of this was when I was like, I like this guy in sports. Things are just evolving so fast and how the game is understood and what is going on on the field, and what's going on behind closed doors, that the powers that be in sports don't even know what questions to ask about how to legislate against what maybe some people think is cheating and other people see as a gray area that just hasn't been defined, whether that's signing players from uh, you know, foreign lands, or uh, at some point there was... Here's an example of this, right? So at one point, the Texas Rangers signed a player named Tyro Barris, who was older than all the other teams thought he was. But the Rangers knew he was older and that he was eligible to sign right now, and the other teams did not. And so the Rangers, before they asked anybody or uncovered this fact, just decided, you know what, we like this player, we're going to sign him. And we know he's eligible to sign, but nobody else does. And it just was a new thing that MLB had not yet thought to legislate against or have a rule of thumb for. So what are some of the areas in magic that are like that, especially when you're playing in person, you can be a deceitful feels like a, a horrible way of describing it, but it, it, in a way it is sort of that way. What, can you describe some of how you've taken advantage of those gray areas in the past?
3: So there, it's funny one of the one of the segments that I'll I'll do on a, one of the Magic podcasts that I do is a Genius or Grifter, which is really just adjudicating these scenarios: whether is this move genius? Is it is it is it really smart, or is it grifter? Are you being a grifter? And uh, it, it's all about angle shooting. Uh, I tend I, I I've I've relaxed a bit. I tend to not go for every advantage at this point, partially because I just don't want to. Uh, maybe that's showing my, my my that I've lost the fire. I don't know, but. Uh, Basically I I would tend to draw the line at things that things that I I think would make my opponent pretty uncomfortable. For for example, I know that I can talk and play magic at the same time because I do a lot of that. I intentionally don't s- sit there talking to my opponent while we're playing in a way that would try to distract them, whereas some some people do like to do that. I I've always found that distasteful. I don't think I don't think that it's like against the rules cuz it clearly isn't but it's not something I would want to do. On the other hand, uh one of the one of the old things in magic is the pen trick where you pick up your pen kind of signaling that you're going to take, you know, they're going to attack you and you're going to take some damage, right? That's how you win. And when they do go to attack you cuz you've picked up your pen and they're like, "Oh yeah, they're just going to take it all attack." You then play something or you block or you do something they didn't expect. I think that's fine. I actually kind of enjoy that that stuff because at the end of the day, you really shouldn't really be trusting anything your opponent says anyway. So them signaling, "Oh, I'm going to just take this damage, but not like actually saying they're going to." You just have to wait and let them actually announce what they're going to do, and I don't think it's a it's a it's a bad thing to do that. In fact, I think it creates some pretty funny and enjoyable moments uh, overall. But I think that the, the line that I, that, that, really cro- that I wouldn't want to cross is doing things that are actively making your opponent's experience worse in order to mislead or distract them, which I don't think that does.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there is there's a, it's hard to know. It's a it's thing that you know when you see it type of thing. For sure in baseball, there's lots of opportunity to do this, especially when it comes to the base runners because the base runners often don't know where the baseball is on the field of play. So if someone is attempting to steal second base, the defensive player who's got to cover second base to catch the ball, to try to tag them out. Sometimes the hitter has swung at the pitch uh, and they can look to a part on the field. They'll look straight up in the air as if the ball got popped up and the runner will see that and think, Oh, I need to run back to first base because the ball was popped up in the air or they get deked in some other way. The runner is misled and there was a, an issue in the Dominican Winter League this year where uh, a, a prospect for the Tampa Bay Rays Vidal Bruhan tricked the runner into thinking that the ball was foul when in fact the ball was just in play and so the runner was just jogging casually back to first base and was tagged out before he got there like this type of thing happens in baseball pretty consistently it's just about the scenario presenting the opportunity for someone to do it and the player understanding that he can do so in that moment that like the runner wasn't paying attention sufficiently enough that it can be taken advantage of. So I, I think it's happening across, you know, all sorts of the competitive spectrum universally. I think something like this is tends to go on. So, well, Luis, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I'd like to give you the opportunity now to, to plug uh, what you have going on at Channel, Channel Fireball and elsewhere.
3: Yeah, if you if you check out uh, ChannelFireball.com, that's a, it's a magic strategy slash card store website that, uh, that uh, like, like I mentioned, I was one of the, the founders of. And it's been really fun being able to to write articles and do videos there. You can also uh, find me on Twitch. I play magic there, uh, twitch.tv slash LSV or on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash LSV. And that's the, the places you'll find me. Uh, I do a lot of stuff, mostly magic related, some other games too. And in general, I, I really enjoy this this kind of uh, pursuit. So it's no surprise that uh, I do a lot of it.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Now I'm joined by pro football focus, senior NFL analyst, Steve Palazzolo. How's it going, Steve?
4: Doing great. Appreciate you having me.
0: This is the uh, the lead up to the draft for, for you guys. It's February. This is typically the time when, I'd be gearing up to watch the combine and watch dudes run around in in shorts and jump as far and as high as they can. How is that different for you this year?
4: Yeah, it is it's interesting, you know, because, you know, I think the combine even though people say, "Hey, it's not football drills, you know, it's not a you never run 40 yards on a football field and all that fun stuff." It was at least a controlled data point. You know, it was hey, we know that people have run the 40 and the shuttle and in Indianapolis every single year it's the same turf it's the same every it's the same guy doing the starts all the time <laughs> you know so you don't get any false starts and so it'll be interesting that you'll get those numbers which used to be pretty controlled you'll get them at pro days and you'll get them you know across the country and there are differences you know like it's not gonna I don't know that it makes or breaks evaluation of players but you know like Penn State always seems to have, you know, faster forties, which they do, you know, and the numbers show it. So there's certain places where the the pro day information just ends up a little bit different from say the combine. So I think that's maybe one of the differences is just getting slightly different workout numbers and figuring out how to, you know, how to sift through that.
0: Right. So yeah, they've shifted to this virtual combine. We don't have a combine in baseball. We will for the first time this year, there have been some athletic testing type events uh that have occurred and they've become more frequent in baseball over the last several years but we don't have the foundation of year over year over year data uh like is generated at the combine for uh the baseball draft and certainly not a controlled environment like what occurs in Indianapolis at the NFL combine so I, before we dig further into the football thing you know i think people listening to this would be interested to know that You were an indie ball and minor league pitcher for a couple of years. And so I'm curious when you left UMass, what was it like? Like, how did you decide to play indie ball for a couple of years? And then how were you scouted and signed out of indie ball by the Brewers?
4: Yeah, it's uh, always appreciate being able to go back, talk about the baseball career a little bit. So this is great. Yeah, it was interesting. I'm six foot 10, which helps, you know, so that was my starting point. So I'm sitting here coming out of college undrafted didn't have a great senior year but there were points i'm like man i've you know i've thrown over 90 before and I, I haven't really been in a great workout program i haven't dedicated myself physically uh to getting better but i kept uh improving from a velocity and mechanic standpoint every year so i was like man there's there's more to do here and basically i just stumbled into every single job through connections and a little bit of luck you know so i found a A guy who knew a guy in Florence, Kentucky. So I started with the Florence Freedom and in the Frontier League. And I I went to Worcester, Worcester Mass, Worcester (laughs) Tornadoes and played there for a year and and played pretty well. And then I finally got a shot. Old friend Will Carroll hooked me up with a scout from the Brewers. And he said, we got a workout out here in Arizona uh, in two days. And I said, I'm there. I'm flying out. I'm going to do it. And I flew out and I was one of two people that signed out of this independent workout uh, at their complex in Phoenix. And essentially, you know, that was what kind of got me my start played one year for the brewers got released and, you know, it sim- went back to independent ball and kind of a similar story. The Giants signed me basically because a scout was there to see our shortstop and my buddy who was on the team knew the scout and said, Make sure Pelizola gets in the game because you know, I was throwing really well. And, and I had, I mean, essentially because I'm six foot 10, I continued to improve and I worked really hard on my mechanics and nutrition and working out. So I started throwing harder and, you know, enough to, you know, pitch at the, you know, it, it, up to triple A and everything. So basically just got, you know, I got into a game where there was a giant scout and they, you know, they signed me and the shortstop coming out of there. So, It was a lot of just right place, right time to continue to get opportunities and then working as hard as I could to just get a little bit better every single year, which I think I was still doing, you know, even when I ended up retiring when
0: I was uh, 30 years old. And then how did you transition into football?
4: Uh, Another kind of a luck story. I mean, I was, uh, I finished up my, my last year professionally was 2011. I hadn't played affiliated ball for about a year and a half last with the Mariners and AAA and then. You know i started you know I, i'd always loved football and you know football was my passion on the side and you know i it was a good way to actually keep my mind off of baseball uh, just a little bit and because baseball had consumed me you know, how do i get better how do i get better and i got to a point where i just had to focus on you know not overthinking things and football kind of became my you know where i where i put a lot of my my attention and energy and uh, pro football focus was a new website that I that I loved. I used it as a fan for a year and I, um, I basically just reached out and I, I, well, what really happened is it was free for a year. They had all this great data grading on players and things I'd never seen before. And it was free. And then they put a price tag on it. And I was like, man, I'm a poor minor league baseball player. I don't have a hundred bucks to spend on this sent some kind of like hate email, email to the, to the owner and founder who ended up eventually becoming becoming my boss, which I thought was funny. And the next year I said, if I can't, I don't have the hundred bucks to spend, so I'm just going to try to work for them. And I just reached out. I said, do you guys need help? They said, yes. And I did a practice game, which for us was just tracking where everybody lines up on the field. And I did it really well because I knew football inside and out. I studied the NFL just for fun on the side. And I was good at what they did from an analysis standpoint. So I did it part-time for a year and then took it did it full-time the first year outside of baseball. So it just kind of, again, timing was incredible and uh, matched up with when my baseball career was winding down and, you know, stumbled into a full-time football gig that I happen to be pretty good at, I guess.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I'm a, a PFF subscriber as well, have been for quite a while, try to do something similar on our site with the board, which is like the place where all the prospect information lives. But, uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Have you, in the decade that you've been with Pro Football Focus, how has what you guys are doing changed? How has what the NFL is doing in terms of player evaluation, both at the amateur and pro level, started to shift during that time? Because I, I'd imagine that just like it has been in baseball, what the, the, some of the the philosophical thinking in front offices has changed and some of the tools by which you're evaluating players has also changed.
4: Yeah, I think, I think it's probably – it's definitely a slower burn, I would say, than – than baseball, but maybe not. It depends on your perspective. You know, sometimes you get people that are like, "Oh, baseball's is football is a dinosaur." You know, people are slow, but it, you know what it is? It's it's information. You know, it's information that helps in the decision making process. And uh, a lot of times we make things very cut and dry. Like, are you using the analytics to make decisions? And it's like, I, you mean numbers? You mean information? Yeah, of course, everybody does that. So I would say in the ten years, what I'm most fascinated by is you know, all 32 NFL teams use our data, and they. Um, but, but at varying degrees, you know, there's 32 different, there are 32 different businesses, 32 different business models, and some teams take a little bit of our data. I mean, they all use it a lot, but again, sometimes it's just in game planning, some, or sometimes it's more game planning. Sometimes, you know, some teams take our stuff and they put it right up against their scouts information and say, okay, here's a check and a balance against our scouts. Then there's there's the philosophical stuff. Where, you know, should you draft a running back high? Should you give them a second contract? Should you, you know, run the ball before setting up play action? A lot of those things, our information, I think, has just helped to bring that to light. And, and you know, again, it, you, you make strides, I think, in those areas more and more, you know, maybe to not take running backs as high or not to give them second contracts, you know. So um, I think it's been a slow burn overall. The NFL is already driven by information as it is. We just provided a whole lot more of it. And, you know, again, every organization does things slightly differently and some are, you know, a little bit more forward thinking than others, but they're all using information to to help them make decisions as best they can.
0: And so the ones who you would maybe consider more forward thinking or at least starting to shift the way they think about, I don't know, like how they define defensive positions, that seems to be pretty amorphous living here in, in Arizona, watching the Cardinals have like six linebackers on the field at a time and yeah. you know some of them blitzing. It's totally different than anything I'd ever seen before. Where are some of the areas in football where that thinking is starting to evolve, where teams are are trying different stuff? Uh, you mentioned the running back thing. Uh, you know, like I'm a Panthers fan. And so I remember when D'Angelo Williams and Jonathan Stewart and Mike Tolbert, the three of them were occupying like a giant space at the salary cap in such a way that – the rest of the team couldn't really get any better. And that was really frustrating. So, can you talk a little bit about those areas where the evolution is occurring? Where is the cutting edge of that thinking right now?
4: Yeah, so so football's always been fascinating. And I think what I loved about it so much is that you know, pl- the strategy of it evolves. And, and I think what's in like it's different from baseball because yeah, maybe like at some point in baseball, they said, hey, maybe getting on base is more valuable than we thought it was before, right? Um, but it wasn't so much, and it was a little bit of a strategy change, like, hey, find some guys that will work some counts and get on base a little bit more. But football, I think, there's a lot of good coaches who do things intuitively that almost back up the numbers, right? So like, you know, when when defense, what 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when the Patriots started running like a spread offense, they would, they would have three wide receivers out there and teams hadn't adjusted yet. And they would be out there in their base defense and having linebackers cover Wes Welker. Well, you didn't need numbers to tell you that's not going to work, right? So you need a, you need three corners out there. You need to run more nickel. So all of a sudden the NFL starts running more nickel, five defensive backs, dime, six defensive backs. So a lot of it evolves just from coaches intuition because the strategy dictates it. Then you have Other things, like what you're saying with the Cardinals, where it's almost like, let's create this positionless defense. That's kind of like, okay, here's this creative next evolution off of that strategy of maybe we can deal with fewer linebackers, more at more athletes. And part of it is like, we have to compete with all the great athletes on offense. The other part is, Hey, maybe defending the run. Isn't nearly as important as defending the pass. So again, I think that would be, that would be one of the things strategically where defensive coaches used to start every press conference with we got to stop the run and they you know they right. in every defensive meeting got to stop the run and i feel like that is going to hey let's defend the run but with fewer players you know let's just have fewer players on the defensive line or in the box and but we really have to stop the pass we have to discourage the pass first so i think there's there's that from a defensive standpoint from an offensive standpoint i think teams are you know there's still some teams that think you have to run the ball 30 times to win and there's some some bad analysis and data out there but more and more teams are thinking okay we can throw the ball earlier than we uh on early downs and dictate the action and passes come uh points come through the passing passing game the NFL made it easier to pass through the years so i think the strategy of the game has evolved and teams are again slowly starting to pick up on it, it, it used to be a run the ball stop the stop the run type of philosophy around the league and that then And now I think it's it's pass the ball, stop the pass, and more teams are buying into that now than maybe they ever have.
0: Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like the whole, yeah, anytime Eddie George carries thirty times or more, the Titans are (laughs) twelve and one, and it's like, yeah, because Steve McNair was God for three quarters, and then they got to finish the game, and so Eddie carries the load in the fourth quarter, and they've run because they were winning. They didn't win because they ran. And yeah, it's tough in baseball. It's so much easier to do this because so much of what's going on is one-on-one. It's the pitcher versus the hitter. There's not as much context necessary to understand what's going on. Whereas in football, whether or not uh, Sam Darnold is any good has a lot to do with the pieces that are around him. So how do you guys go about trying to suss out that context? How do you guys try to individualize the way you're evaluating players when so much of how guys perform is dependent on their teammates?
4: Yeah, it it is the most difficult thing about football, and you know, again, you you go when people say you can't like PFF can't do what they do in football, which is great. Every single player on every play, it's usually followed by you don't know the play call or or, there's there's so many gray areas and all that, right? Sure. When which is true when all we can do is provide Mm -hmm. good data and then figure out what to do with that. So the example I always use. The, the thing that first attracted me to PFF back in like 2009 or 2010, there was a game where there were, uh, I think it was Gerard Mayo was a linebacker for the Patriots and uh, Brandon Spikes linebacker for the Patriots, 2010. And Gerard Mayo had like 14 tackles in the game and Brandon Spikes had maybe two and Spikes had a better PFF grade. So this is before I joined PFF. I'm just a fan of the site and Brandon Spikes with his two tackles had a better PFF grade. And Gerard Mayo had his 14 tackles and a worse grade. And I'm like, how is that? I mean, I buy it, you know, how is that even possible? And there was like a write-up about it. And it was like, Brandon Spikes is blowing up the fullback on every play. And essentially he's doing the dirty work. So Gerard Mayo can get the stat. So that would be a very clean example of if you're evaluating players on a play-by-play basis, which by the way, yeah, football is a small sample size sport, but if you're evaluating players for 800 or a thousand snaps, that adds up over time. And so Brandon Spikes is doing his job, not getting the stat and, and doing it better, and he got a better grade. So I, I think that's how you try to uh, parse out the context, and I think we've done a pretty good job of that. It's not perfect, but when you compare, yeah, you know, our QB stuff is, uh, I think, better than anything that's out there from a football evaluation standpoint because it is the most stable year to year. It is the most consistent, and even though there's ESPN's QBR and there's EPA and there's EPA and completion percentage over expectation, there's all these new numbers out there. Ours are ours ours are the most consistent. And it is, I think, as simple as when a guy throws a great D pass and it gets dropped, we're giving him full credit. And there's no other system out there that's properly doing that, right. whether it's QB. Like it doesn't show up in expected points. It doesn't show up in completion percentage or any way you measure completion percentage. It doesn't show up in QBR or passer rating or anything. And we're saying that throw was just as good as the same exact throw if it was caught. So it's trying to add proper context to each player on each play. And then you go back and you can say, okay, well, this quarterback had a a good year. But we do know that historically, say, getting into the weeds, but say positively graded throws for a quarterback is a little bit less stable, which makes intuitive football sense. Because when you have more good receivers who get open, you have more positively graded throw opportunities. So we try to find the parts of our data that are most stable year to year, just like uh, you know just like evaluating pitchers, It was like strikeouts, you know three true outcomes, right? And you know that those are most stable year to year. You know that hits and batting average on balls in play. And you know the simple stats years ago that were like, hey, these things fluctuate. Hey, these things stay stable. Right. We tried to just find the stable metrics in our numbers. And some positions we're better at than others, but I think that's really the key in any analysis is trying to figure out what works and and what you can count on year to year and how much is noise and how much
0: is dependent on on those around you. And then turning attention to the draft, how about evaluating the differences in talent, especially in a year where everyone just played in-conference opponents, the difference between the conferences, the difference between strength of schedule, how do you guys go about balancing some of that out in terms of evaluating amateur players uh, who might be in very different programs. It's a very complex situation this year, especially with the quarterbacks at the top of the draft, right? Trey Lance, North Dakota State versus Justin Fields at Ohio State. It's, you're evaluating apples and orange there based on the context, right?
4: Yeah, it, it's really difficult. I mean, it's difficult in any year because yeah. you're talking about fcs versus hey you know justin fields versus what look what alabama has these last couple years mac jones and tua throw into all these first round picks and just absolute studs and playmakers so uh, again uh, the best you can do is is try to isolate the player know that hey mac mac jones had a great grade not completely overreact to you know tua which is like hey we saw tua in the same offense let's you know, let's, let's overreact to, hey, Tua was disappointing in year one, therefore Mac Jones will be. We, you can get overboard with some of that stuff. But again, you're trying to take the, the performance away from the situation as much as possible. Uh, we've done things through the years, especially with quarterbacks, and say, okay, what is an NFL throw? You know, when scouts say this all the time, uh, what's an NFL throw? And, and they usually say, this guy made a, you know, 20-yard comeback. It's an NFL throw. And it's like, yeah, it's an NFL throw that happens like three times a year. Uh, we've done some work through the years that just said, okay, what are actual NFL throws? What throws do quarterbacks make and which ones of those are of the most value? And kind of parsing those out and saying, okay, even though, yeah, it's not complete apples to apples, try to see how Trey Lance and Mac Jones and Justin Fields performed at things that NFL quarterbacks are asked to do. Again, even though it's not perfect apples to apples and the windows are bigger in college, especially at FCS and all that fun stuff, you know, trying to find the data points that you can trust year to year. And in and, and our thing is our, you know, competition level matters. Uh, you do have to make some adjustment to that. We don't do it in our raw grades, but we have to do it almost, you know, more after the fact uh, when you're trying to make a determination on players. So you try to take, again, you know, it's just taking all information and uh, doing your best to, to parse through it and figure out what matters the most.
0: Are there any teams who seem, well, I guess the first question should be between the combine testing any of the performance data in games, what are some of the variables that seem to be driving uh, NFL success? It's going to be different at different positions, right? But I'm thinking about, you know, like the speed score for running backs is a pretty interesting metric. I know there's some correlation between completion percentage and just how many games a quarterback starts in college with how successful he is in the pros. Can you speak to any other influential variables that seem to be indicators of success in the NFL?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I know the QB start one for years was an interesting one.
0: Kind of selection bias, right? Like when you start it, as a freshman,
4: right? It, it is. And it, and it also like guys started leaving after their junior year. So the old, you know, Bill Parcells is like, "I right, give me a senior. Give me a guy that's got, you know, 30 starts, 40 starts. It's like, Hey right, guys are guys are leaving quickly. So yeah. you're not getting that as much. I would say, you know, our, I know from our numbers in particular, our defensive line stuff has been fantastic. And And again, it's because we're not looking at sacks. We're not looking at, you know, 5% of a guy's plays. We're looking at all of them and saying, okay, we have, we have a lot of graded interactions on the defensive line. And we've had a lot of success projecting defensive linemen to the NFL using PFF pass rush grade and in in our, in our run defense grade. And people would look at us and say, it's not even a metric. I mean, but it's a, it is. I mean it's a metric that's based off of quote unquote subjective grading, but it's a metric, right? So I think right. defensive line our stuff has looked pretty good. I know people have done studies on receivers and market share, or target, you know, whether it's target share or market share when it comes to receiving yards. I think that's done okay. But football's tough, man. There's not a whole lot of you know, when you see this, you know you're going to get that. You know, there's not a whole lot of that uh in football. So I think it's it's still evolving and we're doing a ton of work uh, with At each position group to figure out those best parts of our data, which is actually part of the, the the products that I'm helping to develop for NFL teams to kind of help them take that next step. Right now, they get all of our data, uh, which is massive, but now I'm helping to kind of point them in the right direction when using our data and helping right. them make these decisions. And it, yeah, it does vary by position.
0: Are there any teams that are showing clear trends in their acquisitions, whether it's at the bottom of the pro roster or in the later rounds of the draft that seem to lean more on some of this stuff than the eyeball scouting. And then how much do you think the coaching staff just seems like it has to be more involved in, in football than in other sports in this process? I would, I would assume that's part of this too.
4: Yeah. The coaching staff is a tricky one. I'll start with that because I think I've talked to so many coaches through the years and they do they do view things through a le- through various lenses, right? One of the lenses is here's this guy's weaknesses. I'll make them better, and I think that's one of the scariest things when you have to talk to coaches. Now, if I was running a team, I would have to keep the coaches in the loop because they like to be in the loop. They like to know. They like to, and they have to know what they're getting, and they have to know how you. You can't give a coach, you know, like a, a hybrid safety that you want to play slot corner, and then he makes them you know, an off ball linebacker. You know, so you have to have. That synergy throughout the organization, but I think the tricky part with coaches is they see flaw. I think they're they're good at evaluating whether or not players are good. Hey, I see this guy; he's a good player. But I think their their weakness sometimes is when they say, "I can fix that. Give me this. Give me this. You know, yep. this clay, and I'll mold it right." So I think that's the tricky part with coaches. As far as teams, I, you know, I think you can see trends with teams. It's not pure. I would say our numbers are more like production-based analytics. You know, it's it's how well did a guy play on any given play. It's not. There's certainly not a team that's just looking at the PFF draft board and drafting straight up off of that. You know, you don't, and nor nor would we necessarily recommend that uh, because there's so many more different factors sure. to play. But I think you see a team like the Colts that have like a pretty, you know serious philosophy, which is like, we're going to get, they do a lot of personality analysis. I know every team does to a point, but they do a lot of personality analysis and they say, we're going to get guys that we trust and we, that fit us. And we're going to get a lot of length and, you know, guys that just add some sort of trait that makes it difficult for whatever they're going up against, whether it's a corner who has length or linebackers and safeties who have length in their zone scheme. So I think they've done a good job of just blending at least a style and a strategy, and getting their type of player. Of course, the Patriots through the years have always been, hey, you know, Patriot way. And I, But they're known for having a small draft board and and saying, here are our guys. And, and I think there are some teams that do that pretty well, Colts being one of them that just identified their types of players based off of all this information that they've collected through the years.
0: All right, so I would imagine when you're collecting data that, You want more of it is better. More of it creates stability. You want to have a multi-year sample for a lot of these guys. Are there instances recently where the sophomore year is much better than the junior year and that player becomes undervalued? They almost become a buy low in the draft. And then at a lot of these bigger schools, some of the most talented players for next year's draft maybe aren't playing this year because they're behind someone with more seniority or who is just better. How do you guys go about finding out about those players? Are you sourcing information from either the colleges or from scouts who might be watching practice and identifying those players a little bit earlier to build that? This, relationship?
4: this is a question I, I would have a much better answer in about a week because we're in the middle <laughs> of studying this. I just I like just sent the request to our R and D team and said let's study some one year one. I want one year wonders and I want guys who your first description right maybe their best year was their second to last year. And, you know, so you have a a guy, so quarterback position, Mitch Trubisky had one year, Dwayne Haskins, Kyler Murray, guys who just had one year after either being a backup or mostly just being a backup, right. Versus a guy like Drew Locke, who literally started four years and got better every year with the Broncos uh, or going to the Broncos after playing in Missouri. So say, you know, does that, you know, it's easy to say, well, he gets better every year. Great. Um so we're we're actually in the middle of of studying that. And again, I think for us it's just we try to use our data set as much as possible. We don't do a whole lot of talking to scouts. We will. I mean, we'll talk to people, but as far as putting our our final stamp on a draft board or evaluation, there's a little bit of chatter and stuff like that, but we try to let our let our data and let our analysts uh kind of shape things as much as possible. But it's an interesting one, right? Like why did guys drop off or you know after their junior year or sophomore year if you thought that they were a first round pick and then they played like a third round pick are they still a first round pick right because you know because there's a lot of people who think in football it's traits right so you are what you are if we're talking traits if that's the case then maybe your on field performance itself doesn't matter a whole lot if you have a bad final season so uh, we're in the middle of studying that and I think it I think there's the initial return is that there's a little bit of risk would say one year wonders whether that's coming in their second to last year or their last year. And you definitely, because it's data, you'd rather have two or three good years of play. And I think intuitively that makes sense, right? You just have more data, more good data, and it should uh, project better going forward.
0: Yeah, the, the Kyler Murray piece of this is where our two worlds intersect, where at some point, because of the way baseball works, like I've got my 2023 draft board has... 25 guys on it already. Like, I just know who the 25 best high school players who are going to be freshmen, 25 best high school players who didn't sign coming out of the 2020 draft and have now matriculated to college. Like, I just know who those guys are. And I've got three years to evaluate them before they're draft eligible again. Tanner Witt at Texas, TJ Nichols at Arizona. Like, I know who they are already. Whereas that's just not, it's harder to do that in football. So many of those guys Are obscure. And so even though Kyler was like, had one foot in baseball during his whole collegiate career and was changing schools and had to sit out a year because he transferred, because of the background there from him in high school, he was just always on the radar. But when I was prepping for his junior year and had to weigh, all right, what is the likelihood of this guy playing baseball versus playing football? And how does that impact the comfortability of MLB teams and picking him, I turned to NFL draft analysts and said, all right, realistically, this guy hasn't really played. His junior year is about to start. How high might this guy go? And nobody had an answer for me because they hadn't seen him play. And right. so this is where the data, there's it doesn't exist unless you have a relationship with someone at OU who can send you film from him lighting up, practice or whatever he was presumably doing before he was elevated to the starter role and that is the those are the only people who have a real idea of what they're they're looking at for 2 years out from now and that's easy to point at kyler because of hit the profile he had as a high schooler as someone who that should have obviously been done with right but for the you know i didn't know who mac jones was 13 months ago like i really didn't know so uh so yeah it's really really fascinating to see how how that type of thing uh, impacts it. And in baseball, for sure, there is a multi-year problem. Like Shane Bieber, who won the AL Cy Young, had a fantastic sophomore year at UC Santa Barbara. And then as a junior, not so good. And Cleveland decided, you know what? We're going to take the long view here and draft this guy anyway. And it worked out. And then the flip side of that for pitchers especially is, hey, this guy was sitting 90-92 at the beginning of the spring we're two weeks out from the draft, and yesterday he was sitting 94 to 96. And so is that real, or is that recency bias? Is this a real sign of growth or not? And teams just don't know. It's it's fallen both ways uh, over the last several years. It's really difficult not to crack. So I, I sympathize with all the other stuff you have to sift through in trying to analyze these football players because, yeah, the play call, who's next to you on the line, is Aaron Donald getting double-teamed, but when he's not there, you are like it's so difficult to to sift through it. So I appreciate you coming on, man. Is there anything you you want to give our listeners to, to plug? They're sports nerds, so so they'll eat it up.
4: Oh, great. So yeah, all during draft and free agencies and all at everything at pff.com. you know, all of our free agent coverage, our draft guide is pretty incredible as part of our edge and elite subscription. And then I co-host the PFF NFL podcast twice a week where we spend an hour to two hours. You know, sometimes we get long form there, you know, breaking down all the NFL news and uh, especially during draft and uh, free agent season here. And then we have a daily podcast for about 10 minutes, PFF NFL daily. So two podcasts, and then all the great subscriptions we have over at PFF.com. Steve, thanks so much for joining us, man. You got it. Thank you.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, check out the other content at the site, Fangraphs.com. Consider becoming a member or donate a membership to a friend. You have many statistical and analytical tools for all of your baseball needs. Those of you who are here from other corners of the internet, welcome. Check out the site, tell your friends who like baseball, and help spread the good word. Thanks for listening.